Hey there, this is Steve Lee with Veritas Catholic Network. I pray that we're helping you and your family during this time. Help us keep doing the work we're doing by making a gift at www.veritascatholic.com. We're listener supported, so we count on good folks like you. Today, the church celebrates the dedication of the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore, or St. Mary Major, one of the four major basilicas in Rome. So Bishop Frank is gonna walk us through that amazing church as well as St. Peter's, St. John Lateran, and St. Paul Outside the Walls. And while we're in Rome, let's have a look at some of Bishop Frank's favorite spots in the Eternal City. Hang on, here we go. Hey all, welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. I'm Steve Lee, I'm the head of Veritas Catholic Network, and I'm so happy to be with Bishop Frank Caggiano for another week and another great discussion. Steve, it's great to be with you. And we're going down memory lane today, huh? This is going to be fun. Yeah, it will be fun. Absolutely. The churches of Rome. Yes. So, and the reason we're talking about that, Excellency, is because today the Catholic Church celebrates the dedication of the Basilica of Santa Maria Maggiore in Rome. Don't make Mm -hmm. fun of my Italian. (laughs) No, actually, I'm surprised you did great. (laughs) (laughs) So, we will talk about that amazing church. But first, I thought maybe, Excellency, you, you could tell us, what is a basilica? Well, in, in common usage now, in modern usage, right, a basilica is a church that has received designation from the Holy See, most especially, obviously, the Holy Father, for its historic significance. So, for example, when I was in the Diocese of Brooklyn, Regina Pacha St. Rosalia, um, because it was the church that really welcomed all of the Italian immigrants, petitioned and received the the designation, right? And so when we speak of Rome, there are lots of churches with historic significance. (laughs) Yes. But the four churches we are going to talk about are really, they have many different names, okay? They're archbasilicas, they're the the patriarchal basilicas, which is not really used as much as title anymore. But they are the four principal churches of Rome. Four of the seven that would traditionally have been the pilgrimage sites for Rome. And the one we're speaking about today, Santa Maria Maggiore, is first of all, my, my favorite church, period. Right, for many reasons, which we could talk about. And it is the oldest church in honor of Our Lady in the West. Mm. Right? Um, from the time of Constantine, really soon after Constantine, and Christianity being recognized as a religion of the empire. So, um, so there's tremendous historic value to it. It's recognized for that. And these four in particular, because of their association with the Sea of Rome, uh, and of those four, St. John Lateran is the chief of the four, because right. it is the Cathedral Church of Rome. And many people don't realize that. They think St. Peter's is, but it is actually not. Right. Nor is St. Peter's a cathedral. It is not, all right? But it is significant because it's the burial place of St. Peter, of course. But St. John Lateran is an archbasilica, and it is the mother church of all Christianity, which we'll talk yeah. about in a bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. we will. We will. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, and again, before we get into St. Santa Maria Maggiore, um, you, when you go back to Rome, which you do often, um, mm-hmm. you, you don't have a lot of time to see these, the sites anymore. No, I don't. I don't. Um, which is unfortunate. I did lead a pilgrimage to Rome a few years ago, and we did visit 
I went with the pilgrims to visit the churches. Mm-hmm. So that was a blessing. But ordinarily when I go, I go for just a few days. I have things to do at the congregations at the North American College. And then I come back because it's in the midst of the pastoral year and there's always lots of stuff going on. Right. To go in summer when things are quieter could be possible, except Rome is blisteringly hot in the summer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so, so I prefer to travel at other times to Rome. Right. <laughs> okay. So let's, let's begin then with, uh, with Santa Maria Maggiore. You said mm-hmm. this is your favorite church. It is. It is. First, because it is entitled to Our Lady, and I have a special devotion to Our Lady. Also, I've spent a great deal of time in the Basilica because when I was a student priest in Rome, um, I had major problems with my sinuses because of the pollution in Rome at that time. Mm -hmm. Most of the cars were diesel. I'm not sure, I don't think that's true anymore. So I would invariably develop either two or three sinus infections every year. Oh, wow. And I found an American-born doctor in private practice Whose, whose studio was literally diagonal to Santa Maria Maggiore. So there was at least six visits to the doctor every year, and that ensured six visits to Santa Maria Maggiore. And I spent a tremendous amount of time in quiet there. Mm. Mm-hmm. And um, apart from its beauty, apart from its beautiful mosaics, um, Santa Maria Maggiore is also the place where the relics of the crib of Jesus are housed under the high altar. Yes. And um, for me, in my own religious journey of life, that connection between Our Lady and Our Lord, she being his mother, the maternal care she gave, and the logic in my own mind, she knowing who he was, keeping that wood as a keepsake, yeah. is so typical of what a mother does. <laughs> right. Right? Right? They keep our baby shoes for some reason, but they yeah. do that sort of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, it, it show, and therefore, to pass that on, on how grace works, to the whole patrimony of the church, I find so beautiful. It's so yeah. compelling. Yeah. And of course, the miracle that's attributed, you know, it's called a legend, but in my heart of hearts, I, I believe it to be true. The legend of why Santa Maria Maggiore was built where it was. I Our think Lady it's of the Snows. Fascinating. Of course, yes. it's Our yes. Lady of the Snows. You know the story, do you not? I do, I do. I, uh, we should, you should tell it, though, for, uh, yeah. for the listeners who it, don't. Yeah, it's on the uh, Santa Maria Maggiore is on one of the of the seven hills of Rome on the Esquiline Hill, and in the time, as the story goes, of Pope Liberius, there was a Roman patri- patri- patriarch, right, a patrician. Um, I forget his name now. Um, I think it was John. I think it was John. Yes. Right. It was John. Okay. Who wanted to make a vow um, to donate the possessions of the Virgin Mary? but they wanted a sign. And the sign came, which in the blistering summers of Rome, um, on August 5th, on the top of the Esquiline Hill, snow fell. And that was the sign that they interpreted that Our Lady granted her favor, and therefore the church was built on that site. 
and has been there ever since for 16 centuries. Yeah. And even to this day, unless the tradition has changed, at least until recent times, on the feast, okay, of, of Santa Maria Maggiore, uh, the, 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 uh, the staff or the canon, the archpriest, drops white rose petals from the balcony, hmm. right, to commemorate the miracle of the falling of the snow on the Esquiline Hill. I just, I, I just think it's tremendous. And of course, in the church, as you walk in, which it's enormous, it's absolutely enormous, mm-hmm. and what you see in all of these churches, but particularly St. Peter's, is that you lose your sense of proportion. Yes. Because they're so proportionally exact. Yeah. Like, when we get to St. Peter's, to consider that St. Patrick's Cathedral can fit into St. Peter's in its entirety, spires and all, is quite astonishing, don't you think? <laughs> it, yeah. It's amazing because those, those basilicas, as you're saying, with uh, Santa Maria Maggiore and St. Peter's and St. Paul's outside, all these, uh, when you walk in, they are enormous and huge, but you don't feel lost and tiny. Right, right, right. But as you go into Santa Maria Maggiore and you enter, you off to the left in the beautiful chapel there, um, there is the image of the Salus Populi Romani, which is uh, uh, an, uh, um, a portrait, uh, not a portrait, I would say it's an icon, really, mm-hmm. of Our Lady that is at least a thousand years old, that she is there as the aid to the Roman people. And that icon is attributed to ending a plague in the midst of Rome in the 14th century. And it has survived fires, and it has survived earthquakes, and it has survived everything. And the popes have had tremendous devotion to Our Lady and venerating that icon. So for example, John Paul and Benedict and Francis never leave Rome without visiting the icon and returning to give thanks to Our Lady for safety in their travel. Hmm. And it's to this day, continues to do that. And to look at it, you know, being, you know, typical American, you say, so that's nice. (laughs) (laughs) Until you actually learn about its history. And then it's not just nice, it's it's an amazing testimony of the fidelity of God through the intercession of Our Lady. And if I made this one other piece to this puzzle about Santa Maria Maggiore, which is so dear to my heart. You know, when I was in Rome, my doctorate is on the writings of St. Cyril of Alexandria, who lived in the fifth century. And and Cyril was the driving force of the Council of Ephesus that was held in 431. And it was at Ephesus that the fathers of the church declared Mary Theotokos, the mother of God, Nestorius, who was the patriarch of Constantinople, objected to the title because he claimed God could not have a mother. And therefore, he said it is right for her to be called, her being Mary, Christotokos, the mother of Christ. And Cyril, in his (laughs) quite brusque, Brooklyn-esque style (laughs) of life, Cyril stood up and said to him, if she is not the mother of God, that is, if our child is not fully God, I am still mired in my sins. 
So, God has no mother in his divinity, but has a mother in his humanity. So the connection between Ephesus, which proclaimed the mother of God, and the building of the Santa Mia Maggiore, which was completed only a year after the Council of Ephesus, sealed the church's devotion to Our Lady precisely as the mother of God, which we take for granted every time we say the Hail Mary. Right. Right? There was a time when Christians weren't that, weren't that, not say certain, they weren't in unanimity holding what we now take for granted in faith. Yeah. The other thing too, I keep going on and on. <laughs> you could stop me anytime you want. <laughs> uh, but the mosaics at Santa Maria Major are absolutely breathtaking. Yeah. They are breathtaking. And they are ancient. Okay? And some of them in the triumphal arch go back to the original Santa Maria. And so you have depicted the Old Testament and how the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. Uh, you even have Moses being part, parting the Red Sea. I mean, it's just beautiful. It's beautiful. The sad thing, if I may, which is true of all of these beautiful places, is that people come now, they come, but they come as tourists. They come chewing gum. They come, you know, I'm, half the time I'm, I'm surprised I wasn't arrested when I was in these churches telling people, take, get, get rid of the gum, take off your cap, all this stuff. Because they come as this, it was a tourist attraction, but yeah. it's a holy place. Yeah. So now, of course, you don't want to throw people out because maybe this could be a moment of conversion. The Holy Spirit can touch them. But, but you know, at least since I was a student priest, till now, they have imposed dress codes in yes. all the four basilicas. And thank God they did that. Yeah. And they're pretty strict about um, blatant taking of pictures and wandering around with yes. your mouth open. So we, we yes. took pictures anyway, but we were very subtle and kind of tried to be a little respectful about right. it when we were there. Right, right. And the chapel where the Salus Populi Romanis is, is the Borghese Chapel. It is beautiful in and of itself. It itself um, is as beautiful as and as large as any typical church you would have here in the United States. Typical parish church. Yeah. Amazing. It's quite the place. Yeah, Amazing. it's quite the place. I want to um, I want to get to um, the Cathedral of Rome, which oh St. John's. Yes, and it surprises a lot of people, as you mentioned, Excellency, that because you know St. Peter's is the focus of everything uh, that you see on TV and all that. But as you're saying, St. John Lateran is actually the seat of the Pope. It is. It is. See, first of all. It's interesting. The church itself is the cathedral of the Most Holy Savior. So it is entitled first and foremost to the Savior and Redeemer. And there are two St. John's who are venerated there. It is both John the Baptist and John the Evangelist. Now what's interesting is devotion to Our Lady in the history of the church grew after Ephesus. Prior to Ephesus, the dominating figure, second, of course, to the Lord Jesus, the dominating figure was John the Baptist, precisely as the last of the Old Testament prophets and the one who proclaimed the Lamb of God in our midst. So the fact that St. John the Baptist is one of the Johns that the mother church of all Christianity is, in, is entrusted to, makes perfect sense when you know history. 
Uh, and St. John the Evangelist, of course, John was the only apostle who did not abandon the Lord. Right. Right, in his agony and death. So it is a cathedral. Excellent point, my friend, because there is a cathedra in that church. Every bishop has one in his cathedral church. It is the symbol of his ecclesial authority, but it's also the symbol of unity in the diocese and with the larger church. So the cathedra of the Bishop of Rome is at St. John Lateran. That is why it is the mother church of all the Catholic world. And I would claim all Christian world because even our sisters and brothers separated from us all originated from the church of Rome. <laughs> so we right. all go back to this one church. Right? Yes. And, and I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Excellency. No, no, keep, no, no, I can keep going. I was going <laughs> to uh, point our attention to the uh, Scala Sancta. Oh, Scala Sancta. I have such great memories of the Holy Steps. They, have, they, were, they were moved, uh, I forget when, maybe a century ago, more, um, across the street from St. John Lateran. But they are the steps that Helena brought from the Holy Land that were the steps anyone walked up to enter the Praetorium where Pilate would have ruled. And they are considered holy because the Lord himself walked them in his passion. And I remember as a little boy going to La Scala Santa with my mother and my sister, and my father. And the tradition is they are protected with wood, as you know, because you've seen them. Yes. And that wood has been worn over the years. And no one walks up the Scala Santa, nobody. The only way you get up is kneeling one step at a time. And I forget how many steps there are, but there's a good amount of steps. There's got to be at least 35, maybe, 40, maybe more. I, I honestly don't remember, but it seemed when I was a kid to be eternal. <laughs> eternal, because I did them. I knelt by my mother the whole way up. I will never forget it. I never felt such agony in my life as a little kid. I was, I think, seven years old. I've done it many times since. Yeah. And it is, uh, I'm not exactly sure. And there are places where the wood has been cut away, where the blood of Christ is venerated. Right? So what a remarkable, right? What a remarkable uh, place yeah. um, to share for a few minutes. What are we talking about? 15 minutes in, in an agony that the Lord endured freely for all of us. Yeah. Even if you want to call it agony, it's discomfort. Yeah. But, but to somehow, in the mystery of grace, be tied with the events that occurred when the Lord walked up those steps, it's just, I just think it's extraordinarily moving to me. Yeah. And thankful for St. Helena that uh, Constantine sent her to the Holy Land to bring back all those things to... Correct. She Correct. brought so much stuff to Rome. There's other things about John Lateran that are very interesting. Five ecumenical councils occurred at John Lateran. Hmm. The five ecumenical Lateran councils, five of the 20 occurred there. 
It was the home of the popes from Constantine all the way to the 14th century. Right? And it was only when a French, uh, a pope who was of French origin was elected, he moved the papacy to Avignon for about mm -hmm. 70 years. And it was St. Catherine's we spoke about insisting that the pope go back to Rome. Right. Right? And if my memory serves me correctly, the papacy, the papal residence moved a few times because the Lateran palace had fallen into disrepair. And then eventually, with the building of St. Peter's, went to the Apostolic Palace, which now is within the boundaries of what we call Vatican City. Yeah. So for over a thousand years, the Pope lived here too. So I mean, it was, it was typical of what, in the cathedral structures, bishops ordinarily live at their cathedrals. Okay, that usage has kind of fallen away in contemporary times, but in the Middle Ages and patristic that was basically, because you were the pastor, still are the pastor of the cathedral church. So there's lots of history there. And you've been there, right, Steve? Yes, yes. What struck you when you walked into St. John Lateran? The, for me, it was the statues, the giant statues of the yeah. apostles. <laughs> but, they, but they're enormous. Yes. Right? When you first walk in, you say, wow, they're beautiful. When you stand in front of them, you feel so tiny compared yeah. to them. Yeah. Right? Now, there are 12 apostles, correct? Yes. Judas is not pictured. Right. So who's pictured instead? It was uh, Paul. Correct. Well done. A plus. You pass. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Excellency, speaking of St. Paul, I want to make sure we get to spend a few minutes on the second largest church after St. Peter's which actually was the one, I mean, all of these churches were so beautiful, but this was the one that when I stepped inside, I, I had to I catch my breath because it was so breathtaking. But it's uh, St. Paul outside the walls. It is the burial place of St. Paul. So that alone is, should be the reason every pilgrim who goes to Rome finds their way to the Basilica of St. Paul outside the walls. Now, outside the walls refers to outside the old walls, the, the walls of the old city of Rome, okay? So, Paul was uh, uh, martyred and buried two miles away from where he was martyred. And it was, it was an early pilgrimage site of Christians who could never possibly forget where Paul was buried, nor could they have forgotten where Peter was buried. Right. And then eventually, Constantine built the basilica. And until the fire in the 19th century, I believe, in St. Paul's, when they were trying to repair the roof, literally destroyed most of the basilica, it had remained effectively unchanged for almost 15 centuries. Amazing. But, I mean, yeah, my gosh, just <laughs> amazing. Doesn't even quite describe it. And it was consecrated in 324. So... One of the interesting things, the first time I went to, to, to St. Paul's, um, it is famous for its iconography of the popes. Yes. Right? And there was a legend in Rome, among Romans, that as soon as they ran out of, of little circles, they're, they're circular. Yes. I, I mean, I, they, they must be fairly big because you could see them very clearly. <laughs> so that, but as soon as you run out of empty um, spaces, the second company would be over, we're done, right? So it was almost like a barometer for the world to say, 
You know, you're running out of time. And, and so I, I forget how many were empty the first time I went, but I thought to myself, oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, you, you better pray for the Pope to live a very long life because you're running out of spaces. <laughs> and then I did, not long ago I went and I noticed they added some. They yes, added a whole they, bunch. <laughs> I, I think because, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, after Pope Francis, there was only one original spot left. And so, yeah, I, when, when I went two years ago, they had added a bunch of spots. So, yeah, you did. <laughs> right. So now I just wanted to, I think, think of the poor workman who was repairing the lead on the roof that started the fire. Oh. That, that just, imagine what that poor man, the guilt that poor man felt. <laughs> I mean, it was an accident, obviously. And they rebuilt it. They rebuilt yeah. it. I'm not sure they were able to follow everything that was there before, but it's still equally beautiful in my estimation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like I said, it's breathtaking. Right. So, and, uh-huh. and there was controversy, by the way, whether Paul was buried there. Right? But in fact, um, the Vatican archaeologists discovered at the beginning of the, of the new millennium, right after 2000, a few years after 2000, that there was a sarcophagus under the altar, uh, and it was, I believe it was Pope Benedict yes. in 2009 who said the carbon dating reflected the remains of someone who would have lived in the first century. So there is certainly moral certitude that that is St. That is Paul who is buried under the altar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Excellency, uh, let's talk about the big one, St. Peter's, when we come back from the break. Great. Catholic Radio works, and now we have it here in Connecticut and New York. It's been seen around the country that there's no better tool for evangelization. Where there's Catholic Radio, the folks who listen deepen their faith. Families are strengthened, parishes and communities flourish. So, let people know you're listening to Veritas, tell your friends to tune in, and let's make an impact here for Jesus and His Church. This is Steve Lee for Veritas Catholic Network. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank. We're talking about the four major basilicas of Rome, and we are ready to tackle the big guy, St. Peter's. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) San Pietro in Vaticano. St. Peter's on the Vatican Hill. Some interesting things to, to contextualize. It was Nero, I believe, who built a circus on the Vatican Hill. It had prior, prior had been a cemetery. Right. And that was very advantageous because Nero, who was literally insane, literally insane, who in the great fire of Rome decided to make the Christians the scapegoat because there is ample evidence that Nero himself started the fire. Um, he built the Vatican Circus so that with cheap food, bread, and games that put people to death, he would placate the Roman quote-unquote mob. Yeah. So the site that is now the Vatican Piazza is the exact same site where thousands of Christians were put to death. And when you consider that almost the majority of pilgrims, when they come to St. Peter's, 
have no idea of the sacredness, certainly of the piazza itself, even before you enter the great basilica. Um, unfortunately, they've, they've, they've done a great injustice. See, when I was a, a student priest, I would often go to St. Peter's simply because I had friends visiting, relatives visiting, or we would go to celebrate mass or to join papal functions and all the rest. And many a time I'd be sitting under the Bernini columns and, you know, a pastime among Romans is people watch. You watch people coming and going and who's speaking what language, who's carrying what flag, who's, you know. Yeah. And... I myself, it took me a while until it dawned on me that all of those figures, right, who are above the Bernini columns, those who are depicted, many of them actually died in that square. They are, many of them, the Roman martyrs. So they're looking quietly in graced triumph over the place where the powers of this world wanted to snuff them out. So in my mind, they are a holy reproach of all that the world wants us to believe is important. Power and violence and privilege and, and money and possessions. And they sit there quietly reminding the world there's something far greater. Even before you enter into the church. Yeah. Right? No different than the obelisk that's in that square was in the, it was in the circus where Peter was murdered, where he was martyred. So it was, it quietly watched, as it quietly watches now. And that reminds me of the story of uh, Cardinal George. I may have said the story in an earlier podcast, but I have early senility, so you're gonna have to bear with me. But, um, when, um, when Benedict was elected Pope, George, Cardinal George, the Archbishop of Chicago, was one of the electors. And he comes out onto the balcony, one of the side balconies, and he's wistfully looking into the distance. It's typical of Cardinal George because he was such a great thinker, right? So obviously something was on his mind. Mm -hmm. And he returns back to Chicago, and one of the reporters in Chicago noted the photo and said to him, Eminence, what were you looking at? I mean, all the action was in front of you. What were you looking at? <laughs> And George, in his, just in his typical, understated, and yet profound way, he said, I was looking for Caesar. I could see Peter right before me, but where was Caesar? And I thought to myself, oh my goodness, that summarizes the history of this church. Yeah. Right? Um, so, it's not a cathedral, it's an archbasilica, it's the only one within the confines of the Vatican, right? So it's extraterritorial, as mm -hmm. is St. John Lateran, which means when you enter into St. John Lateran, you are entering into, in the Lateran Palace, you are leaving Italy and entering the Vatican city-state. Santa Maria Maggiore and St. Paul's, my understanding is they are not extraterritorial, but they are owned by the Vatican. Anyway, so, and so what makes St. Peter such a remarkable place. Okay, number one, it's the burial place of the apostle, the head of the apostles. Right. It is the place where um, the Pope is most recognizable in the modern world. So 
St. Peter's is used for all the papal functions simply because of its size. It is, by some measures, the largest church, Christian church in the world. Right? When you go into St. Peter's, there are markers you saw when you went in the center aisle that marks off other Christian churches if they were placed onto the footprint of St. Peter's where they would end. Yes. So you have St. Paul's in London, you have St. Patrick's in, in, in New York, which is the smallest of them. You have the Hagia Sophia, you have them all, all lined up, okay? As we said before, it is proportionately so deceptive, but it is gigantic. Yeah. And the dome, of course, was finally, after many architects, was designed by Michelangelo. And there's really two domes, right? There's the one you see on the inside, the one you see at the outside, with space in between, um, and it's an architectural marvel. So the Scavi take you under St. Peter's. Now, the Scavi literally means Scavi, to dig out. Mm -hmm. right? So, um, I also tell you a story about that that's very interesting. Also, yes. most of my stories have to do with my mother in Italy because my, I was my mother's traveling companion, which I'll get to in a second. But the Scavi, for those who are able to go, um, you actually go into the old burial grounds that were the Vatican, right? Originally was a cemetery. Yeah. And what a remarkable, and you go to what has now been confirmed to be the burial site of St. Peter. Yes. Right, and we should do an entire podcast going through that story because it is a fascinating story. And it was the tenacity of one woman, a professor, a woman of deep faith, who kept that scabby, that entire enterprise on track to the final conclusion we arrived at. Mm. You know, it's interesting. As an aside, Pius XII began the excavations, right? And he was deathly afraid that Hitler would discover what was being done at the Vatican. Because Hitler, in addition to being a madman who had a morbid, almost demonic fascination with relics. And if ever it came out that the bones of St. Peter were discovered, the great fear would have been that Hitler himself would have wanted them for himself. Right. So twisted and depraved was his mind. But he began the excavations in 1939. And so they masked them as, as um, um, work to be done to strengthen the foundation of the basilica. And actually what they were doing was excavating what we call now the scavi. And to be able to see whether or not these bones could be found, bones of St. Peter, which, mm -hmm. which they did find. Yes. And recently, Pope Francis took a small fragment and sent it to the, Arch uh, to the Patriarch of Constantinople. Right, a few years ago, as a sign, as a gesture of unity, of prayer for unity among the, the Orthodox churches and the Catholic Church. What was your, what's your, you've been there. What's yes. your, what's your takeaway of St. Peter's? You know, uh, I mean, so much can be said. Uh, it's, 
for me, when I first stepped into the piazza and you see that recognizable structure, the basilica, mm -hmm. the piazza, the colonnade with the, you know, encircling the piazza, like two arms, it just, um, and then stepping into the building and, you know, I, I mean, I don't even know what to say, Excellency, from Michelangelo's Pieta to the statue of St. Peter that you see that you touch the foot to, I think I spent 10 minutes underneath um, Bernini's Baldacino, just looking up at it. It was so amazing. It's just <laughs> everything in that church. I know. I know. You know, it's interesting. La Via della Conciliazione, which is that thoroughfare that allows you to go into St. Peter's, right, did not exist until the signing of the treaty with Mussolini. Huh. Okay. He helped orchestrate and built that as a way of recognizing or welcoming the concordat he had created with the Vatican, uh, the peace, with the, at least at that point with the church. All of St. Peter's was designed, you, you've seen ancient Rome, right? The winding streets and narrow alleyways and all the rest of it. St. Peter's, prior to the signing of the Lateran Treaty, had none of, the, of those streets, so that you would be winding, winding, winding here, there, and all of a sudden, boom, you would enter into the piazza. It would have just been, you would have been dumbfounded <laughs> because there would have been almost no preparation for what you were about to see. Now, some of that was lost when they built the Via de la Conciliazione. It's more regal now, and of course, in papal masses, the first papal mass I attended was Easter Sunday in 1990. One, and there were 300,000 people at mass. Okay, let me go back to the story about the Scavi though. Yes. So I've been to the Scavi a few times. And in my last trip to Rome with my mother, who at that point was dying from her lung cancer, I had wanted to bring my mother down to the Scavi, which we were not able, she was never able to do before. And I go to the office and I ask, and they basically said no. Couldn't join any other tour. I explained to them the situation this is my mother's last trip to Rome because she's not going to nothing, nothing. With an attitude that I, I walked out of that office and said to myself, you are lucky I am not the Pope. Oh. Right? So it was the kindness of an American priest who was at the North American College who is credentialed to be a Scavi tour guide. I happened in conversation, just mentioned, it was almost towards the end of the trip we were there, who arranged for a private Scavi tour for my mother. Wow. Which he was able to do. Wow. And I will never forget that act of kindness, nor will I forget the brusqueness and the, 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 the lack of welcome that at least the staff then, which is a long time ago, yeah. offered. It's a contrast of the church at its best and the church at its worst, right? Yeah. The Pietà is remarkable, absolutely remarkable as you walk into St. Peter's. If you walk into St. Peter's, right, it's on the right. It's the first chapel on the right. Yes. When I was a little boy, the first time I saw it, there was no plexiglass. You could actually see it without any intervention. Huh. That plexiglass was put up when the one 
deranged man took a hammer to it, if you remember. Yes, I know and, the story. And they, and they restored it, to, of course, now to a layman's eye. It, it looks perfectly intact to me, but there was damage to the fingers and the hand and the nose and all the rest. But um, to consider Michelangelo's ability to envision in a block of, of marble that statue and to bring it out as he did in he, as he imagined the cupola and how he, uh, it's just a remarkable testimony of, of how we are made in the image and likeness of God. That there is something we can put our hands to that is eternal and profoundly beautiful. Um, that of course, eternal in its spirit, it will not last forever, but it reminds me of the dignity that the human person is called to. Whether you're an artist, whether you're a lawyer, whether you're a mother, whether you're a housewife, whether you're a priest, whether you're a bishop, whoever you are, it's profound dignity. And these sort of, of artistic expressions, in my mind at least, show us the true greatness of what humanity is called to be. Right? Yeah. And how much we settle for the mediocre and just the, right? Yeah. Now, of but, course, there is a, a, there's a history too to St. Peter's, you know, with the whole question of indulgences, that it's, it's not its most shining example, right, or moment. But as many, many know, it, it was in the 16th century, in, in order to finance the construction of St. Peter's, that the German Dominican preacher, Tetzel, went about and in his preaching left a distinct impression that one could buy indulgences, which is one could buy remission of sins and the punishment of sins, which was very unfortunate because whether he really intended to do that or not, um, it was understood to be that and it was one of the major impetuses for the 95 Theses that Martin Luther wrote that began the Protestant Reformation. So it was, the, it was not the cause of the Protestant Reformation, it was the spark that lit the fire that caused the Protestant Reformation, at least in part. Yeah. So, so that part of the history of St. Peter's is, is not the most noble of them, but again, that's not to take away from its beauty and its intent and its meaning, but you know, there's always sin in our midst in the body of Christ that we have to root out right? at all time and all ages. It's true. We, uh, we should actually go into that uh, further uh, in a future episode. Um, mm -hmm. While we're in Rome, Excellency, I want to see if we can talk about some of, you know, besides these uh, major, you know, landmarks and holy sites, some of your other favorite places, restaurants, other churches, anything off the... Oh, the my favorite restaurant. My favorite restaurant in Rome is Cecilia Metella on the Via Appi Antica. Uh, Cecilia Metella has... Uh, first of all, it's out of the city. And um, it is an out... It's both indoor and outdoor. They have a beautiful veranda on the outdoor. Um, their, their pasta is just to die for. Mm -hmm. I, I, I have no other way to describe it. <laughs> it's just, um, it's, it's, it comes, the one I order, comes in a ceramic bowl that is pasta and, 
and cheese, peas. It's, um, I think, it, if I remember correctly, it's called alascrino. Mm. And it is, I mean, I, I'm getting hungry now. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm giving myself palpitations. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's just one tip of the iceberg of the food that, you know, we always joke about, you know, Romans and Italians. But the food is just incredible. Yeah. And it tastes different in part because most of those ingredients are fresh. It's not to say this is the only place on earth that you could have great food. That's not true at all. But, you know, any place that takes food fresh to, to cook, to serve, is going to be in a par unto itself than what, unfortunately, most of us have to deal with, which is food that's either processed or food that's far removed from it being picked. And it's just different. Right. It's just different. Yeah. But I used to go with some friends of mine from the Casa Santa Maria, where I lived, to, uh, uh, for example, una pizzeria que se llama Est Est Est. It's in the basement of some house. <laughs> okay. It's, it was about 50 minute walk from the Casa, maybe a little bit more. And Sunday nights, religiously, if the angel of death was looking for me, the angel knew where to find me in Est Est Est. Why? <laughs> because there were Pizza, un bodivino, bianco, white mm -hmm. wine, and olive ascolane, stuffed olives. Mm. Probably a cholesterol nightmare. <laughs> but, but if you're going to die over something, <laughs> eating those. And it was like a ritual every wow. Sunday night. Wow. And it was filled with Romans. There were like almost no Italians. Now, there were some other places we used to go to that um, I was brought to, to be honest, because I, I did not often go to them, that they would literally, no menus. You just ate what mama cooked. So this is what mama made today. You don't like it. There's the door. So pop was the, was the camerieri, who was the waiter. The son or daughter did all the logistics. Mama was the cook. That was it. That was the restaurant. You know, Steve, you can't beat it. Uh, I don't, you could go to the 17-star restaurant in New York City, I don't care where you go. In my humble opinion, that food and the fun yeah. and the, the laughter and the community, you can beat it. Those are some of the funniest, happiest, most interesting experiences I ever had in Rome in the five is, years I was there. Wow. <laughs> Then my other favorite place to go, and I would go often, was the Roman Forum. Because, um, sure, pagan, sure, it's ancient Rome, but it's, it's intimately tied to the history of our church. Mm -hmm. See, it was those authorities that put to death Peter and Paul and the ancient Christians, the Christian martyrs, the Roman martyrs. We celebrate them on June 30th. And we would like, in the 21st century, to look at what's now ruined and say to ourselves, oh, these people were backward, these people were this, these people were that. Ladies and gentlemen, the truth is, we are building equal temples in the contemporary world mm. with similar idols. Yeah. Okay, we just call them something else. Mankind has always vied with God. And to think through our own means and efforts, our own opinions and knowledge, that we are at the center of things. 
And when I look at the ruins of the Roman Forum, they are a sobering reminder that any society, any age, any civilization that loses its compass and forgets the centerpiece that God plays in that, you will wind up in the same place. Yeah. <laughs> right? So before we get there, we need to straighten ourselves out and remind ourselves what our true priorities are. Yeah. So I, I used to go there often, many times simply to pray. I'd pray the rosary walking through the Roman Forum. Hmm. Huh. Mm -hmm. I, um, I, I loved, when, I, when we went into the Piazza Navona, that's just exactly how you'd imagine a beautiful pia Italian piazza to be. I thought that was awesome. And Piazza Navona, do you know its history? No. Piazza Navona was actually, um, was created for, uh, for fights at sea. It was a huge pool. And the emperor built it in that format so that they could reconstruct for, you know, the crowds, the ancient naval battleships right, the, the, the battles that Rome would have won. So it once was water. Oh, wow. That now has become a piazza. Mm -hmm. Amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, before M Mussolini spent money to redo the infrastructure of the city, when the Tiber flooded, it would flood all the way to the Piazza Navona, which was a good distance. And only now, Right, that they built the retaining walls, that that does not happen. Although the interesting thing is, you remember seeing the Tiber, correct? You remember seeing those yes. walls that are out there, that are huge. Yes. Right? When I first went to Rome in 1991, it literally was like Noah. It rained for almost two months. And the water went almost to where they are now, the lanterns, the electric lanterns that light it up. So it was 80% up the wall. So if that had happened in ancient times, a good part of the city of Rome would have flooded. Yeah. Totally. Right? <laughs> can, I, can I say, Excellency, uh, just because I went there two summers ago with um, about a dozen high school boys and some parents uh, led by mm -hmm. a priest who is a dear, dear friend of our family. Mm -hmm. And just, these are just two things that stick out from the trip uh, for me. One was we went up to um, Assisi and we, the... There were like 15 of us. We played ultimate frisbee on the piazza outside Santa Maria dell'Angeli in Assisi. <laughs> There's that big piazza. Did you just, really? Yeah. 15 Americans running around playing ultimate frisbee. <laughs> the, uh, wow. One other thing that for some reason is just burned into my memory is uh, we went to the Basilica of St. Clement. Mm -hmm. And we had mass uh, just ourselves in the basilica there. And it was so cool because there's that little kind of walled off section right in the middle of the church, right above St. Clement's tomb. And I don't know, for some reason that just, that was pretty awesome. So. I have one experience from me very quickly too. Yes. And that is, in that very first time I participated in a papal mass, as grace would have it, I was positioned in a, such a way where I could see the entire piazza down the Via della Conciliazione, all the way to the Tiber. I mentioned there were 300,000 people. And w the image that's burned in my mind is, this is the people of God. Yeah. In all their variety, different races, 
languages and banners. When I pray the glorious mysteries of the rosary, when we speak of the descent of the Holy Spirit, always that picture comes to mind. Right? That that is who we are, and it's only Christ that could demand allegiance from us all. Yeah. So that image has brought... The other image, if I may, is in Assisi. When I walked out of the Basilica of San Francesco, the first time I went, it was a quarter to six. And the sun was setting and you could faintly see the moon in the distance. It was a full moon. There was a sense of peace that I have never had before and I've never experienced since. A profound serenity that was a gift to me. And I realized then that place makes a difference. Francis, in part, was who he was because of the place where he lived and where he worked and where he was formed. Mm. Same is true for Rome. So my question to all of us is, in the places where we now live, are they places where the inbreaking of grace can startle us still with beauty, with serenity, with tranquility? with peace of mind and heart. I think every place is potentially can do that, but we have to allow it to happen. Yeah. yeah. Francis did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, let's take one more break, Excellency, and then when we come back, we're gonna hear from the listeners. We need Catholic Radio because we need the voice of the church in the public forum. We live in a time that the secular voice dominates so thoroughly that we need to get that Catholic perspective out. Just as Fulton Sheen used radio and TV in the last century, we need to continue to use this means to announce the Catholic faith in the public forum. Welcome back to Let Me Be Frank with Bishop Frank Caggiano. Excellency, we have an email this week from uh, Chris in St. John's uh, in Stanford. He has two questions. So mm -hmm. he wrote, your Excellency, it's been nearly seven years since you were appointed Bishop of this diocese. What's mm -hmm. the biggest positive change and the biggest negative change that you've observed during that time? And then the second question he wrote was, what are the biggest challenges to primary Catholic education in our diocese in this period of history? One of the, one of the changes I have seen over the last seven years that gives me tremendous hope is that I have seen a number of communities truly begin to flourish, right? To grow in fervor, um, to grow in apostolic service. Like for example, the community at the Basilica at St. John's is one of them, right? Um, and despite all the challenges we faced, and there are many, mm -hmm. um, that fervor has dampened. In many ways, it has grown. And it has led me to um, question the premise I started with, and that is, when I began as diocesan bishop, my thought was the renewal of the entire diocese. And while my goal has not changed, the methodology has changed. Because that renewal is not going to be all of us doing the same thing in the same way, but it's like planting a garden. That we have to be able to plant seeds so that communities can grow, even though communities will complement each other but not look identical to each other. 
Our faith is always the same everywhere. But the way we live our life and our liturgical preferences and all the rest could be different. We're still one holy Catholic apostolic church. So I am very happy to see that that's happening. And quite frankly, with the pandemic now in our midst, um, there's going to be a lot of institutional change. And with that change, I am hoping we will be able to free up spiritual energy, attention, and resources to continue to plant this garden in other ways. So my greatest disappointment is that on the whole, um, the secularity of the county, we have not yet effectively found a way to stem its reach. And you see that in mass attendance continuing to drop in different areas of the diocese. And New England is the most secularized section of the country. So lots of people do wonderfully good things, but they oftentimes forget to connect it to their life of faith as a Christian. So we do what we do because it's an expression not simply of human virtue, but we do what we do because we are doing it sharing the life of Jesus Christ in the world. So how do you overcome the persu persuasive, pervasive, and almost insidious spirit of secularism? Um, that's something that still remains, I would think, the fundamental challenge that we have to deal with. And maybe the pandemic will also help in that regard because now everyone has faced their mortality that suddenly the promises of secularity, which rest on the premise, my life is all about me, <laughs> doesn't help you when you're in ICU, literally struggling for your life because of the coronavirus. Yeah. Or you cannot attend to your father who is dying alone in a hospital bed. Now you have questions of ultimate value that secularism can't even begin to answer. So in my mind, this pandemic is the pivot point in my Episcopal ministry here. I believe that with God's grace, if we join together, some of the fundamental challenges that have afflicted us for generations, we have a singular golden opportunity to truly address. If we're willing to let go of some of what we are comfortable with, including some of our institutional patrimony, be broad-minded enough that the church in its richness and its, in its tradition allows for many different expressions of faith, and we're willing to work together. I think we have a true renewal. So I'm, I'm praying the first seven years were preparation, the next seven years We'll be able to see, to see the, the garden grow. And by that time, I'll be 72. So, it's, you know, it's now or never. For Catholic education, did you ask about Catholic education yes. too, Steve? Just the biggest challenge right now. The biggest challenge right now, we are in the midst of a strategic planning process um, that will have teeth. And the first strategic uh, priority is Catholic identity and Catholic culture. To, to be able to instill truly a ministerial character to all teachers, fundamental basic requirements for liturgical celebration, worship, mass, confession, devotions, and to create a culture that's devotional, that engages heart, 
will as well as mind. That's the goal. The greatest challenge, quite frankly, is the accessibility of Catholic education. There are too many faithful families who do not have the financial resources to put their children into Catholic school. And even though we give almost $3 million worth of aid through foundations and education, there's at least now eight to $10 million worth of need. That was before the pandemic. After the pandemic or intra-pandemic, I am guessing that need has skyrocketed. So we are in this position where how do we get these families the ability to come to our schools? That is our greatest challenge. The Catholic identity culture piece, I will take care of that over time. I think we can improve. I think what we have is good. It can be improved and strengthened, and I'm committed to do that without a doubt. But it's the financial accessibility that I have limited ability to address, and that's something we have to work on together. I will end with one thing. One person came and donated anonymously a million dollars two weeks ago, specifically to help families who are being adversely affected by COVID-19. And that money is at the discretion of local principals. So if there's someone listening to this podcast who says, I don't know if I can make it financially, go to your principal and seek aid because there are truly heroic people in our midst who are going to be of help. Wow, yeah. That's the great goodness people show. Praise God. Mm-hmm. So, Excellency, while we've mostly been stuck in place this COVID summer, uh, it was fun to be able to take this virtual trip to Rome with you today. Oh my gosh, yeah. Oh God, you, and I'm going to have so many memories for the next few days. Oh my God. Uh, Before we go, uh, would you please give us your blessing? Certainly. May the Lord bless you and keep you, shine his face upon you, and grant you his mercy and peace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Enjoy the week, my friend. See you Thanks, next week. Thanks, Okay.